understand geopolitics, you must have the freedom to be honest. The More Freedom Foundation podcast. Hello, Rob. How have you been? Oh, not bad, not bad. How you doing, Rory? Uh, it's just been very warm here, so it's about 20, around low 20s. What's that? Low 70 Fahrenheit, which uh, it's a bit much for me. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to be, uh, I think we're... We're at the start of what's likely to be quite a hot summer, uh, so it's, uh, it's we're getting there in New York as well. I'm having fun playing around with Mid Journey. Oh, what have you been making? Uh, it is. Uh, I just I was looking for a piece of stock footage uh, mm-hmm. for an upcoming video that has been upcoming for too long, as they all tend to be nowadays. Uh, and I couldn't find it. And I was like, well, why don't I figure out this mid-journey thing? Uh, for those who may not be aware, mid-journey is one of these scary new AI technologies uh, focused on visual. I think famously uh, a recent one that came out was the Pope in like fancy puffer jacket. Ah, that and, was mid-journey. And also Donald Trump uh, being arrested. You may have seen ah. those about. Those were from mid-journey. Yes. So it creates these images. You ask it to create an image and it will create an image for you. I'm, I'm not going with anything quite uh, that uh, uh, inflammatory at this point. But uh, no, I was like, I need a, a visual of a closed hospital. And it was, boom, stunning. It's incredible if you give it specifics. So it's like, oh, 1940s Time magazine. It's just like, it just looks like an actual photo from Time at the time. Oh, nice. Oh, that's interesting. Actually, that's a good that's a good prompt. I'm getting these lists of prompts. Uh, so yeah, I am now falling deeper and deeper into uh, the artificial intelligence workflow, uh, decide my leeriness of it. But it's it is uh, from a video creation standpoint, it is uh, kind of uh, amazing. Oh yeah, it's definitely going to bring a a hell of a lot of uh, benefits as well. But mm. did you ask it what a America Chinese Cold War would look like? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't yet, but maybe I should. It, 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 it's uh, the our, our robot overlords may have something to teach me. Uh, today, I would like to sort of do a, what I was no doubt the first or second or third, depending how you measure it, of many um, sort of check-ins on uh, the new Cold War, uh, which is specifically, I would argue, U.S. policy towards China, and to sort of do a bit of an overview of how these things are changing. And how I think the United States is screwing this up at this point. So how would you describe the current relationship with China and America? Well, the current relationship is really crappy. Uh, This is as bad as it's been uh, since the 1970s, I think is a fair way to describe it. Uh, Specifically, well, COVID didn't help. Uh, The Trump administration didn't help. Uh, but the Biden administration has really uh, not been diffusing any of the Trump. Uh, so is he, uh, it, I think it was seen as he would let things off because there was the sort of trade war um, carry on. So has he kind of made things worse? Well, it depends on your estimate of worse. And I might sur- surprise some. Uh, I'm actually not so anti-trade war. Uh, anymore, I think I—I I don't think I talked about it a ton, but I um, uh, at the time. But I think certainly uh, during the Trump administration, I had more vestigial sort of libertarian free trade uh, uh, makeup to my um, uh, approach to things. Uh, so I was more, you know, mildly outraged by the trade war. I don't think I made any videos about it. 
But compared to what Biden has been doing, uh, I think the trade war is actually quite sensible uh, and actually might fit more into what I would call. I mean, as a first thing, like I don't like the idea of a new Cold War and I don't think we should do it. But there's a right way to do a new Cold War and there's a wrong way or rather there's a, a way better to do way? a cold, a sustainable way to do a new Cold War and a apocalyptic way to do a new mm. Cold War. And I would put trade war in the sustainable column and I would put a lot of what Biden's been doing in the apocalyptic uh, column. So actually, I'd say China's uh, sorry, Biden is much more aggressive towards China. Uh, than Trump was in some very important, um, serious ways that uh, push us a little further in the World War III direction uh, than we would like to go. So has the trade war officially ended or did it just transform? I think there was like a phase one deal in Trump's last uh, period of time and power and then everything got sort of, I'm pretty sure China's not uh, honoring aspects of that deal. I think there was minor relief of some of the tariffs, but it, it's all complicated. And this is this is one of the problems with discussing U.S.-China policy is that it's very hard for anybody to keep track of it because there are multiple different sectors of the U.S. government who are trying to do things, some of which are smart, some of which are very stupid. Um, the overwhelming impetus and framework is militaristic and national security oriented, but Everybody's trying to get their fingers in the pie because there's money in it. Uh, my understanding is that many of the tariffs uh, have been preserved by Biden. Uh, so actually, you know, Trump, um, Trump's trade war continues in in many aspects. Is is my understanding? Uh, and I compared to the innovation that uh, Biden has brought. I think that's not really a bad thing. Um, I guess we should just go right into it. Biden's innovation is making Taiwan a big deal. Um, and that is a bad idea. <laughs> no? Um, when did Chinese-American relationships start to soar? Because it was seen that both China wanted to change when it seen the fall of the Soviet Union and America seen influence it, influencing it more in a capitalistic fashion as a way of making it more democratic and not just a way to make things much cheaper than they could in America. When did it start to seem like it was going wrong and suddenly China was um, enemy number one? Well, um, there's a number of different ways to answer that question. Uh, the United States has had this constant, has always been a little aggressive towards China. I was just remembering, uh, thinking about this this morning, I was just remembering I had a buddy in the ROTC uh, back in the 90s in at university. So the ROTC is the Reserve Officer Training Corps. I think I got that acronym right. It's essentially the program through which uh, uh, people can get their university paid for, and then they also join the military. So like they, they get their college paid for, and then they become officers for a, a defined commitment. And they, But while they are undergrads, they're also uh, participating in ROTC stuff on the campus and they go and do stuff. And this buddy in the ROTC, this is in the late 90s, he's, mark my words, Rob, like, we're going to war with China. That's all we're talking about. This is wow. in the 1990s. Yeah, when it was considered to be Bill Clinton, everything's happy. Yeah, yeah but this was the, always been a focus. Uh, going back to the 1940s, we were just really, really pissed off that China went communist. Um, and remain pissed off. But uh, 
from Nixon through, see, I would say only from Nixon through the second Bush uh, or the first term of Obama, we had a pretty strong policy of let's use the Chinese against the Soviets. And then just really the impetus of like, let's use the Chinese against the Soviets, which involved, you know, trying to develop them economically. They did have horrendous relations at one point, didn't they? Absolutely. I think they, they fought a few border wars. And also, I think China built a huge number of bunkers because they were worried the Soviet Union would nook them. Yeah. I, I, gosh, you know, I can't remember. I don't know the details on this, but I remember seeing some weird piece of content talking about how, like, the Russians actually, like, asked the U.S. permission to, not permission, but, you know, just by the way, what would you guys do? Oh, yeah, if we did if this. We nuked, if we nuked China. Purely hypothetical. Be, purely <laughs> hypothetically. Would you guys be cool with that? Uh, so yeah, they, they had, uh, so the, the sort of impetus of like, let's use China against Russia, really the WTO thing, even though that was a decade after the end of the cold war, I think it was that, that first like Nixon impetus, like that, that push that sort of carried through until the, the first Obama administration. And then I would say that from the first, second Obama administration, uh, from 2012 on the pivot to China. Uh, the undercurrent of aggression towards China became the main current. And in 2018, and this is, it's really, you could pinpoint it probably to a period of three weeks. Uh, it's funny, we were talking about how the Islamic State sort of stopped being something to bomb in 2017, 2018. Uh, and it became very clear that the whole war on terrorism thing was going to stop working. So in 2018, uh, the... Uh, everybody decided all at once that China was something that we were going to worry about and that the focus of Washington, D.C. went from fighting terrorism to the great power competition, which is nominally about Russia, but mostly about China. And what we, this is one of those moments where it, 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 it was in the spring of 2018, and we hear a lot about how uh, oh, governments don't control narratives anymore. It's all social media or the internet. Or and I think the, the clearest, clearest mark against that would be what happened in the spring of 2018, because the Pentagon put out a new national security strategy. Uh, to be fair, in the spring of 2018, everybody who was paying, most people were paying attention to politics we're paying attention to the Trump show, the never ending Trump show, you know, him being a president, being a mess. So perhaps they got away with this more easily than they would have otherwise. But yeah, they put out this national security uh, strategy the next week, like uh, the economist uh, ran a cover story being like China betrayed us or the China lie or something like that. New York Times, Washington Post, everything just on board immediately. Uh, a lot of European media outlets followed suit, like just like the government, I mean, more authoritarian than anything I've seen out of China. You just like government says, this is the new line. This is the new line, which I felt compelled to do in a bad Russian accent. <laughs> so, so really in the spring of 2018 with shocking speed, the establishment, you know, line became China hate. Um, and, uh, it hasn't really led up since. Has China done anything to deserve this? Cause I've heard it's become more authoritarian. It's harder for foreigners to work in China. And a lot of Europeans are coming back cause they just find it. It's not the China that it, it used to be. Well, I think a lot depends on chronology and what you include in the chronology. Uh, I think that 
China has unquestionably taken actions in Hong Kong, uh, in Xinjiang, um, that have been really terrifying and nasty and horrible. Um, I don't see any basis to the claim that they've been acting in a more aggressive way towards Taiwan. I think that's fantasy land nonsense that is being used to cover up the U.S. government's own choice to make a massive switch, specifically under Joe Biden, a massive switch towards more aggression over Taiwan. Um, now, a Chinese person would argue, well, Xinjiang and Hong Kong happen to be China, man. Yeah, Myanmar, China. <laughs> like, like, we're, not, we're, not, we're not like changing our approach uh, to uh, the United States based on Ferguson or, or um, you know, the, the, the guy who got uh, George Floyd getting strangled by cops or whatever. Like, what gives, man? Um, but so a lot depends on chronology and what you include or don't include in what has happened. And I think what prompted me to, to, to make this podcast episode was realizing that, like, I've missed stuff, too. Um, one of the more interesting interactions. So, sorry, to answer your initial question, things have been really bad under the Biden administration. There's been, oh, we're going to back off, and then we double down. Uh, apparently, uh, and I think you know it, it is appropriate to some degree to have conspiratorial suspicions about this, whether it was a U.S. government actor or a Chinese government actor. Uh, in February of this year, uh, Blinken was supposed to go to China, and meet with Xi Jinping, which is an incredible, my understand, I, I think it's a stereotype, but also true to some extent that um, the Chinese government stands on ceremony and protocol. It's very, you know, these things are important, um, not, supposedly in Asian culture to some degree, but I think in, in practice, it is an observable reality. The Chinese government really cares about face and protocol and this, that, and the other thing. In February this year, uh, Blinken, uh, our main foreign policy guy, was going to go to China and meet with Xi Jinping, which is like Xi Jinping making a you know a, a great step down to meet with just the diplomat instead of Biden himself. Um, and that week is the week that the the Chinese balloon was noticed flying over America and was shot down. Um, and the uh, Blinken's meeting was canceled, which of course makes it more insulting because it was. It was released on a Friday that Xi Jinping was going to deign to meet with Blinken, and then Blinken canceled the meeting because of the balloon on Monday or, or something like that. Um, so, yeah. So since then, I think it's fair to describe uh, the state of U.S.-Chinese relations as being as bad as they have been at any point. I, I think there's like a Taiwan Straits crisis in the 90s or something. I'm sure you... or. Yeah, when they shot down that U.S. spy plane, or no, it wasn't a U.S. spy plane. I think a U.S. spy plane collided with a Chinese warplane in killing, I think killing the Chinese pilot, uh, and then went down in China. That was in 2000 or so. So there have been instances. In the early hours of Friday, May the 7th, 1999, NATO planes bombed the center of Belgrade and almost risked bringing China into the conflict on the side of the Serbs. Two rockets hit the Chinese embassy. Of crises that have been pretty bad, but as far as sustained crappy relations, I'd say February to now, the past three or four months have been among the worst. And you're confident that this is more America pushing it as opposed to China? Uh, yes, I'm pretty confident in that. Just looking at the like the volume of, of stuff 
specifically the Taiwan um, issue. Well, because China definitely do want to take it back. That's no secret. But it's the key thing, Rory, is that it's never been a secret. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why is it suddenly changed? Yeah, it hasn't. <laughs> it, it, like nothing about it is. And it, it's stunning the way that this is reported in the U.S. To, to make it seem like it's something new and different. Like we've had, the United States has had this policy. It's actually called the One China Policy um, in the United States. Um, there are definitely nuances. There are definitely, I would have to spend a half hour preparing, uh, comparing, uh, you know, paragraphs of what the Chinese said in this memorandum in the 70s and what the U.S. said in this memorandum in the 70s. But functionally, the United States has been committed to the idea that there is one China um, throughout the past hundred years. Uh, that meant supporting Taiwan as the one China up until the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, the allowance that was made was that essentially China and the United States agreed to just not talk about it. Yes. I remember Trump bringing it up because it felt like he just discovered it, but basically <laughs> saying, isn't this very strange that we kind of pretend that they're one, but they're not. And what's really key about what Trump did on Taiwan is that in his um, initial, this was before he was actually inaugurated. I believe he, I can't remember if he made a call or took a call from the Taiwanese president in an official capacity and he bragged about it on Twitter. And that was his first foreign policy crisis. Like that was like China is like, you're just, that's part of this weird agreement to not talk about it that China and the United States had since the 1970s. Um, I think, you know, initiated under Nixon and I think codified under Carter, actually. They, like, there's a series of memorandums. The delicate diplomatic dance. Yes. And we just don't. But what it doesn't mean we don't do business with Taiwan. It doesn't mean that we don't arm Taiwan. We have always done business with Taiwan. We have always armed Taiwan. We just, again, this is the, the Chinese protocol thing. It's just we just don't rub their noses in it. We don't have official direct government to government contacts. There's... Um, the, there's this weird and there's a couple weird entities that are like foundations or like conference groups or whatever, which are basically like the medium through which the U.S. government interacts with the Taiwanese government. It's like a bullshit like thing there, but it's just how we've done it. And it's worth mentioning that this fifth half century long accommodation has been extraordinary for Taiwan. It's essentially the the Chinese a Chinese U.S. agreement to not talk about Taiwan, but heavily collaborate on making Taiwan as rich as possible. Um, even and with China's crushing of Hong Kong, it's become all the more important. It used to be that Taiwan and Hong Kong were like the two places where you interface with China that have rule of law and like. You know, uh, U.S. businessmen or European international business people are more comfortable there. Now Hong Kong's kind of gone. Um, so that makes Taiwan even more important, even richer. Like, why do you think that, like, uh, the most, uh, you know, crucial chip technology is there? Because it can interact easily with, like, the manufacturing capacity and then under very close to U.S. laws. Like, it has been extraordinary for Taiwan. In, in the 1970s, Taiwan was a nasty little dictatorship. Well, it was already progressing significantly by the 1970s, but certainly in the 1950s, it was a nasty little dictatorship. It wasn't a democracy until the 80s or I think even the 90s. Um, it's been great. This sort of, and when Trump, you know, initially had this kerfuffle, he was like, oh, huh. And he actually learned that lesson. And we didn't hear much about Taiwan throughout the Trump presidency. There just wasn't anything there. 
it's Biden who's got, uh, with one crucial exception. I think I've mentioned this before. Um, the Pompey, the uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, State Department head for Trump, who I really, really dislike. Few politicians I actually really, really dislike, and Mike Pompeo is one of them. So he won't be a guest on the pod. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, 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 that guy deserves every ounce of obscurity he gets. This is something that many administrations do, but the Trump did a, a, a rather large, uh, swath of them. In your last day in power, you enact all kinds of policy shifts that are impracticable, uh, impractical to insane. Um, and then when the new guy comes in, is like, obviously we're not doing that, um, you, he backs off of it and then you'd be like, oh, you love China, you love Iran, you love Cuba because <laughs> you're not doing this incredibly, you know, righteous thing that we refuse to do for an entire four years in power. So Pompeo, on his last day in power, goes, screw it. The State Department's throwing out the rule book. Forget these, you know, these weird commissions we have to interact with Taiwan with. Government to government relations is fine. We're doing it. Ah, ah. On the assumption that the Biden administration would come in and be like, Hell no, like we're not going to essentially declare war on China. Um, and then the Biden administration came in and was like, that's a really cool. good idea. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and they haven't, they haven't doubled down. Like they haven't like explicitly, like they, they didn't, like they didn't, again, this is easy because it's also complicated and vague and like they didn't, they haven't really like pushed like, okay, every state department official can meet with their counterpart in Taiwan or whatnot. But they haven't backed down on that announcement much at all. And Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, um, which was a really big thing in 2022. And now we're signing a fucking trade agreement with Taiwan, which is like, like, uh, we're already trading with Taiwan, man. Like, it's like hard to imagine the U.S.-Taiwanese trade relationship getting stronger. Like, this is exclusively... Uh, a device to piss off China. And it's nuts as far as I'm concerned. It is nuts. Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about like what a sane approach to the new Cold War is. Is there anything that, you know, America and China work well together with internationally? I mean, like Are everything? they always just at loggerheads? Is there anything they agree on and can get things done on? Probably everything in uh both of our rooms right now right um i think you know I, I mean i think that like most of uh I, I, an extraordinary amount of technology the physical the physical culture of the world is a collaboration between china and the united states um i think we work very well together i think we have the potential to work even better together um and also we have the potential, tremendous potential for positive competition. Like, it's okay. I think I hate this. Um, and a lot of people organize their uh, analysis of foreign policy around this. And it pisses me off. Like, you're, you're Noah Smiths or you're Matt Stollers or this sort of thing. But, like, I think it is kind of true that the United States is kind of lame without somebody to work against like we really 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 benefit like we just from competition better yeah we just function better like the civil rights movement would not have happened without the cold war that's pretty well documented uh we would not have had 
the miraculous sort of mid-century economic moment we had um, without the Cold War, without the threat of socialism, you know, corrupting our workers or whatnot. Um, and I think it's you can make a pretty good case that since the 1990s, uh, the U.S. elites have focused pretty exclusively on just getting rich um, to the you know sacrifice of everything else, whether it's the U.S. working man, whether it's uh, scientific development, whether it's uh, just... So could this competition see America treating its working class better? Potentially. Uh, I think we've we've seen glimmers of that in a lot of the COVID approaches, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the way to get there isn't, isn't quite so straightforward, but if we were in a point where we were in a legitimate, uh, 1950s, 1960s style competition in lifestyle that we were with the Soviet Union with China, then yeah, I mean, I don't, this is this is second half of the 20th century type stuff. Uh, sorry, second half of the 21st century type stuff, where you know Chinese living standards might conceivably be at the the, the state of U.S. Uh, living standards. But like, it's very possible to envision uh, a world that prospers mightily from U.S. Chinese competition. It has to be very carefully done, but it could be done to the benefit of everybody. Unfortunately, what we're seeing in the United States is a military first approach to this. And specifically what Biden has been doing. Oh, on, sorry, on Biden's uh, thing, uh, with the Biden's Taiwan thing, there's the State Department thing, there's the trade deal, there's Pelosi going. Biden has like on four or five separate occasions said, yeah, we're committed to defending Taiwan. Which is like throwing out 50 years of U.S. policy. Yeah, wasn't the whole point sort of you're almost not saying anything you'd do? It was all smoke and mirrors? Yes. And he's just come out and said it four or five times. Uh, you know, the first time, oh, it's just a gaffe. He just like, I mean, this is, this is seriously dangerous stuff. The U.S.-Chinese relationship is based on two pillars um, from the 1970s. Uh economic cooperation basically you know we're gonna make stuff cheap with you and we're gonna make you rich so you can fight russia and not talking about taiwan the first pillar i took me a while this but by the 2016 election i was convinced that the first pillar is simply no longer viable like we just can't provide the amount of um economic support to china that we have done and that's natural. You know, you you get to, we got to this point with Japan in the 1980s as well. It's just like, well, you know, uh, you know, we've given you a leg up and you have vaulted beyond us. So we're going to stop. Uh, so obviously uh, Trump's trade war could have been better executed. Uh, it could have been um, uh, <laughs> it would have one of the main thing to execute it better would have been to just go to trade war against China instead of China, Europe, Korea, Japan at the same time, which was something that he did. Losing the run of yourself. I think it could have been better executed, but I think that some de extent decoupling between the United States and China, uh, China uh, the United States focusing on building more in Mexico, um, building more in the United States, uh, supply chains, then that, that all makes sense to me. That seems like sensible steps. So that's that first prong, like that's going to be like negotiated and that's going to be cut down and that's going to be, you know, going to morph into 
larger scale economic competition between China and the United States, and it's going to be destabilizing, but like it can also potentially be good for both countries because it gives us something to strive towards and strive against or what have you. The Taiwan thing, which, so Obama was the guy who started going after pillar number one, uh, the, the trade, the, the economic uh, handouts, that kind of thing. Uh, Trump went after that, but didn't touch Taiwan really, ex uh, except for that first, that first uh, controversy before he was president, and then Mike Pompeo's move on the way out the door. It's Biden that started uh, goofing off with Taiwan, and it's I think part of it is frankly the U.S. military-industrial complex realized that they weren't going to get the the ability to spend as much money as they wanted to without China devolving into war. Um, and we've spent a solid decade. I mean, you can go back to Graham Allison, wrote a book called Destined for War, the Thucydides Trap. This is all stuff that was being pushed heavily in 2014, 2015. And I think people realize that, like, in, in part because Trump screwed with pillar number one in a lot of ways, with the trade war, this, that, and the other thing, realized that they weren't going to get the war they wanted out of China unless they went after China's biggest red line, and that's Taiwan. Because I've heard the other thing is the uh, China's geography, I know if, say, Russia collapsed, that might change things, but it's not going into the likes of Vietnam because it's mountainous and jungle, mm -hmm. which is incredibly hard to fight. It's not heading towards Japan or anything. It's not heading towards Russia because it'll get nuked. Its only place to expand will be into the sea with, we see the arguments over the the red da or seven dash line, and we see Taiwan. So it is, as you say, exactly where all China's uh, territorial ambitions are going to be funneled. So to kick that out from under China is a great way to get their attention. Yeah, yeah, and and make it more violent. So there's this question of like um, China changed something. China's the revisionist power here. This is what the China's pushing and being aggressive. And, and I, that's simply not true. I mean, there's these two pillars. And I agree that that first trade and economic relationship pillar has to change. It does. But it has to change for U.S. reasons. And it is the United States that has been trying to change that since the second Obama administration. Um, so this idea that China's being aggressive, China's being revisionist, is just simply... Not true. Like the United States has been when you're you're talking aggressive externally because you could see the the how it was treating Hong Kong as, you know, that's just a warm up act for what it plans for Taiwan. Well, you can also see what it was doing to uh, Hong Kong as kind of kind of a reaction to what was uh, what was going on with Trump, um, where we feel very very threatened, and certainly that's what you can see. Xinjiang, we feel very very threatened. And to be clear, uh, Trump actually did less of the physical intimidation stuff than Obama did. Uh, Obama, it's it's not looking so great now, uh, <laughs> but uh, Hillary Clinton's greatest accomplishment was turning uh, Myanmar against China. Uh, China, you know, Myanmar and its regime had always been very close to China, and uh, uh, Obama and Clinton got it to open up to the West which is an incredibly threatening thing for China to lose like one of its very, very few sort of close allies on its periphery. Uh, Obama was also talking about opening bases in Australia. And most importantly, this is in 2015, um, got Japan 
which has a pretty nasty history with China. Yes, a very long history, but yeah, definitely incredibly bloody throughout World War II. Yes. Uh, got Japan to significantly, and Renounce probably overstates it, but significantly alter its commitment to pacifism and dramatically step up its defense budget. This was something that Obama did. So, like, yes, I mean, obviously, like, you can't uh, make excuses for what's being done in Xinjiang or Hong Kong. They are uh, terrible, terrible things. But you can also make a pretty clear argument that they are a response to threats from the outside. And I think that uh, if you consider the context of um, uh, the Trump administration and all the smack he was talking, even if it was less aggressive than Biden and Obama turned out to be, um, like in that context, it's like uh, it's kind of hard to be surprised by what happened in Hong Kong and what happened in Xinjiang. Do you see a appetite with the civilian population of China and America for a confrontation? That's a great question. I, I think it's being it's being intentionally fostered in China um, by the Chinese government, and it's intentionally being fostered in the United States as well. I mentioned that that spring 2018 switch. And if you look at the the public opinion polls, public opinion marched in lockstep behind what the U.S. government and the U.S. media was saying. Um, this this myth of like this incredibly independent uh, public is kind of uh, dissipating, frankly. Um, and yeah, the the Chinese and uh, U.S. publics, unfortunately. Um, we'll build up an eagerness for war if uh, the Chinese and U.S. governments construct a narrative in which this is the case. How can you see the um, Australian deal where they basically America says you're not buying these French submarines? Um, how can you see that tie into this, you know, more militarization and, you know, just a sort of more hatred towards China? Oh, so that's nuts. Uh, AUKUS is nuts. Um, so AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US deal. I made a video when this happened. I said it was dumber than the invasion of Iraq, frankly. I, it, it's just, it's an extraordinary commitment of funds uh, basically behind nuclear proliferation. The United States has decided to proliferate to Australia. Now there's the, the instant argument is like, no, 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 we're not giving nuclear-armed um, we're not giving nuclear armed submarines to Australia. They're just nuclear propelled submarines. And of course, the the infrastructure you need to maintain and support nuclear. And they could take uh, nuclear missiles, couldn't they? Yeah, of course. They just don't they, have they, them. Yeah, they, they just don't officially have them. And this is a incredibly expensive, incredibly sweeping, incredibly long term deal. But isn't this better for America than Australia? Because I heard the subs they wanted from France were much better for protecting Australia, while these ones are better suited for America. I can't speak to the, again, I, I cannot, I am not, there are many things I am, I am not a, any kind of expert on military equipment. Uh, and I just, I, I, in part because like a lot, you know, I don't think, I don't think anybody knows because we haven't seen a real war uh, for 80 years, you know, like, like it, every war we've seen, even the Russia Ukraine thing is you consider on like how that's the closest we've had towards like a real like war where we test out these equipment, the, this equipment. And I mean, what we know thus far, even from this quite limited conflict 
uh, compared to World War One or World War Two, is like all the Hatsi Tatsi equipment failed, like all of it. You know, like <laughs> so that that's that seems. I mean, I guess HIMARS is looking okay or whatever, um, but that's like somewhat pinprick. So I I can't speak to like wh whether the submarines are better. What I can speak to is that Australia has now made itself a massive target in the context of any U.S. China nuclear exchange. That's not a good deal. <laughs> no. No, I th th there was no... This creates more reasons to irradiate Australia. Well, hey, you, you, you ever read the book On the Beach, Rory? No. Oh, it's this classic Cold War book, and it's about the, the survivors, or rather, it's about the people of Australia waiting on the beach for the fallout from the nuclear war that has killed everybody else to spread down to them. So it's like, I think they have a period of weeks or months before the fallout comes down. So they really get to just sort of ruminate existentially on the fate of human civilization as they wait for the fallout to, to like, uh, to come in. And listen, this solves the on the beach problem for Australia. Oh, it, it'll just hurry it up. Yeah, no, it's guaranteed uh, if U.S. and China uh, fall into nuclear war, uh, Australia will be number one, like number five on the target list, will be utterly annihilated. And there is that U.S. military base right in the center of Australia. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they'll I'm sure it'll get a little visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah, the on-the-beach problem for Australia has been solved. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a terrible... And another aspect, uh, because of this militarization... Uh, the Chinese have gotten much more committed to their nuclear uh, program, uh, entirely understandably, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, the Chinese were content to maintain what I guess is called a, uh, a retaliatory or like second strike capability. It's like, well, we've got... Would have been a couple of hundred? Yeah, we've got like 300 nukes. Um, so we're, uh, you know, you can't nuke us without knowing that some sub's going to come sneak up and, and nuke your city. So, haha. -ha. Um, now, because of the militarization of this competition that we've so enthusiastically uh, engaged in, they are now heavily committed to building out the nuclear arsenal. I think the expectation is that they'll have a thousand warheads by uh, 2030. Um, that's, I mean, terrifying. That's still a fraction of the 6,000 that the United States, um, I think both the Soviets, oh, sorry, <laughs> the Russians and the United States maintain. Uh, about 6,000 active warheads. Give or Again, take, I yeah. That, I don't know what this means. Uh, and China will be up to 1,000 by 2030. Um, but yeah, that's another uh, result of this militarization. And absolutely, AUKUS is impetus for that and accelerates that. Um, so yeah, so uh, yeah, AUKUS was the US and the UK working with Australia to give them nuclear-powered uh, submarines. And also to base nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed U.S. submarines in Australia. I think that starts already. Um, so, and then maybe in the next 30 years, Australia will get a few submarines of its own. But so I, I think a couple things I want to talk about here. So on the Council for Foreign Relations website, there is a tremendously useful chronology of U.S.-Chinese relations. What's interesting about this chronology is, well, yeah, I... It was useful for me for preparing for this. Uh, so the Council of Foreign Relations is a U.S. NGO nonprofit organization heavily funded by U.S. business, uh, but is also like a very prestigious 
uh, New York based play. I think Henry Kissinger just had his hundredth birthday. Maybe it was it was certainly with a lot of Council of Foreign Relations people, whether or not it was actually at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Um, but they provide this great timeline of like U.S.-China relations, and just looking at the past four years of it, um, it's a great resource if I ever decide to write something longer on this. Um, it's really striking what they leave out. Like they just don't mention. Um, like that whole dynamic I was talking about with Mike Pompeo, you know, the Trump administration and the Biden administration changing the status of Taiwan, seriously impacting strategic ambiguity. They don't mention that. Uh, they don't mention, uh, Biden's, um, uh, any of Biden's gaffes talking about- It's all uh, just how when China did a bad thing? It's, well, not exclusively. Like, okay. uh, they'll talk about, well, that, that, you know, it's foreign policy establishment. They don't like Donald Trump. They'll talk about when, uh. Trump did bad things. Um, but yeah, they don't mention any of Biden's gaps. Um, they don't mention the Taiwanese trade deal that uh, I think was signed in 2022. I didn't really even know about that until I did research this morning, which is just a sign of how you can just, just uh, you know, miss this stuff. And what was quite, which was shocking to me and came up over the past uh, couple of weeks. So we've got U.S. government that is now realizing, I think in part because of Ukraine, uh, I think they're realizing that if uh, the United, if China, if, if we really pissed off China, they could just send a couple million artillery rounds to Russia and change the nature of that that conflict very, fairly quickly. Um, I think in part because of that, the Biden administration is realizing, oh, we should probably dial it down a notch. Uh, so they tried to have like a semi-official meeting with uh, the Chinese defense minister at a larger security conference in Asia. I think it's called the Shangri-La conference, which is kind of crazy. Um, and uh, the Chinese government refused, refused to let uh, Lloyd Austin, our defense secretary, meet with uh, uh, Li Fengxia, uh, the Chinese minister of defense. And what was usually only reported in the fifth to eighth paragraph of that is that we do not have, uh, is that they refused because the U.S. maintains sanctions against the Chinese defense minister, which is just... It, it's oh, just, is it personally him? He is personally sanctioned. Wow. Um, by, and I was like, oh, God, you know, I, I'd learned this, and I was like, I, I was like, gee, well, is, is it a Xinjiang-related uh, thing? So it's like maybe, you know, it's harder to complain about that. Or did it, and no, it is a 2018 Katza sanction. So basically, they sanctioned a section of the Chinese government because it was buying weapons from Russia. This is in 2018. When it would have been, you know, legally okay to... Yeah. Well, it, it, it's just it's just kind of mind-blowing that... I mean, Katza is something that's just being dropped down the memory hole anyway. Like, we were already sanctioning... We sanctioned China. We sanctioned Turkey for buying weapons from Russia. This is before their, this is before their 2022 invasion of Ukraine. So we were already carrying out acts of war against Russia. But it's just, it's fascinating that this definitely doesn't make the Council on Foreign Relations list of interactions between the United States and China. The fact that the United States sanctioned mm -hmm. a significant general in the Chinese military. That's just not even considered. This is, this goes back to an earlier episode, just talking about how insane and uncontrolled U.S. sanctions policies policies are. But it was it was a surprise to me, frankly. I didn't realize I, I was familiar with the Katza issue, 
because the U.S. sanctioned Turkey under that, which is another yeah. weird uh, bag but of worms. It makes at least some sense since they're in NATO, while with China, it makes less sense. Yeah, it, it's essentially it's just U.S. It's just U.S. one world government uh, that that uh, folks are refusing somehow still refuse to acknowledge. Could America uh, also... go too easy on China? Like, is there a line that should be drawn? Do you believe? I think I, I was very against this at the time, but I think especially after the 2016 elections, um, I've become persuaded that we simply couldn't maintain the free trade with China, what have you, uh, forever. We just couldn't do it anymore. And Biden's certainly not trying to go back to that. Uh, what Obama was trying to do was trying to come up with the saner, more multilateral, less insulting way to do it than Trump did with the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But I do think that the time was past due for a re reimagining, reconfiguring of uh, U.S.-Chinese um, trade relations. And I think that people who want to just go back to the way it was, I mean, to be clear, I don't think they should be cut off. I don't, I am not a fan of the, we haven't, I, we haven't had the time to get into it. Um, and I don't, I haven't drilled down on the details, but the, I'm very troubled by some of the Biden administration's actions against China's tech, um, community. Like the, it's one thing like tariffs. Cool. Uh, like you tariffs you 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 decide what comes into your country you can work with tariffs yeah um at business people change their minds the sweeping sanctions and they are sanctions uh that biden has instituted against the chinese tech industry are i would say acts of war um again like if the united states persuades uh allies or decides for itself that mm, we don't want to use any Huawei technology in our own procurement. Okay, that's fine. But what the the United States has taken about 15 steps beyond that, uh, essentially saying stuff like, what was a really key one was, um, no U.S. citizen is allowed to work in the Chinese chip industry. That is quite broad, isn't it? And especially when you consider that there are a lot of uh, Chinese nationals who... Uh, Learn, you know, uh, were educated in the United States and might have green cards, might want to travel back to the United States or whatnot. That's putting them in a pretty terrible uh, position. Uh, we are actively looking for way. I'm not as up on the details as I should be, but we are essentially attempting to strangle the U.S. the Chinese tech industry in ways that I think are pretty dark and very likely to boomerang back upon us. Um, maybe they're the right. Do you mean that it could make the Chinese tech industry stronger? It, yes, exactly. And let, you know, in a way that's less reliant on America. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I don't, I haven't really drilled down on the details of that. Um, I think there is a scope. We need tariffs. I think we need, um, industrial policy in the United States. I think that government needs to take a hand in, um, making sure that we do have certain kinds of industrial capacity, as they already have in uh, Europe for uh, uh, for decades, um, and as we used to do in the United States, but have sort of abandoned uh, for this uh, Reagan era. Um, so yeah, I, I so I think that first pillar, which again, it's the United States who has decided to overthrow the trade uh, pillar of U.S. Chinese relations, 
which is our right and I believe our necessity to do so. Um, and I think people who want to just go back to 2005 uh, are very wrong. Um, so, yeah, I think that a sane new Cold War against China involves clever, careful work by engineers and attorneys um, to figure out the, the best way, the most beneficial way to, and it's important that this carefully crafted approach has to keep China on the hook to some degree. We don't want to like turn it into North, you know, uh, the second biggest economy in the world into North Korea or what have you. You got to keep on the hook in some ways and, you know, uh, cut them off in other ways. And there's precedent for this. It's what we did to Japan in the 80s. Like we, we, we know we can do this. It's very possible. What we don't need to do is like, woohoo, let's do World War III in the Taiwan Straits. Um, there's this, this impassion, like, don't you care about Taiwanese liberty? What do you want to do for Taiwan? And it's, and it's like, uh, well, I, I want to do what's been so incredibly, uh, successful for Taiwan for the past 50 years, which is just like, just don't, don't mention it, don't mention it and collaborate with China and making Taiwan incredibly wealthy. Like it, that, that's fine. Realistically speaking, how much of a threat is China to America? Like, is it a threat? I think you said maybe in the next decade or maybe the next two. Like right now, China isn't really a threat, is it? With the exception of nuclear weapons, which I believe China does have a few that can that can reach anywhere in the United States. With the um, without massive, massive technological changes or or uh, changes to society or whatnot. It is unimaginable for China to pose any real threat to the United States, the territory of the United States, this century, um, which is a marked contrast to the United States, which is absolutely threatening Chinese control of Xinjiang, Chinese control of Hong Kong, and the Chinese control of Taiwan that they believe they deserve. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see any real threat. What China does threaten um, not yet, but I'd say, and I used to say by the 2030s, now I'm a little more 2040s camp, but things can change dramatically. We have another financial crisis that somehow only affects the United States or something. Um, but I think by the 2040s, what China will do is threaten U.S. hegemony in, um, in Asia, um, which is not a surprising or like yeah. unreasonable thing for China to want to do. Um, but that is what China wants to do. And I think that is what the U S wants to stop. I think what's important to keep in mind, or an important question to keep in mind is like how much blood and treasure is the U S public willing to sacrifice so that, um, uh, the United States is more powerful in the South China Sea than China is. Um, and I think that's something, that's a discussion we have not had. Um, and like the, this sort of, there's this just sort of automatic, like, well, if Taiwan falls, then Japan is going to fall. And it's like, really? Is that how that works? Like, does, like Japan has, I believe the second largest and most capable military and on the planet compared and to... And it seems like it's only um, unleashing its military recently. Yeah, I think it's like doubling or tripling its defense expenditures. Well, I think like, what uh, I've heard is it's like, oh, once you get Taiwan, then you unlock this string of islands, then another string of islands, and before you know it, Australia. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't find that... I don't find that argumentation particularly credible. Uh, I don't think it makes much sense. I think it's true. 
that Taiwan is an unsinkable aircraft carrier and that the current status quo, and this is what's so crazy about what the United States is doing, because under that status quo, Taiwan remains an unsinkable um, uh, aircraft carrier, this weird unresolved thorn in China's side um, that actually, as China becomes relatively more powerful, um, could still be there and still be this, you know, subtly. And if the United States was subtle about it, um, you know, we could have, uh, and I think we are in the process of arming Taiwan to the nines and, and this, that, and the other thing. But like, I, I'm not convinced that, uh, as Washington DC seems to be convinced that, uh, prompting a massive war over Taiwan in the near term is at all in the U S benefit. I think Taiwan remains this interesting thorn in China's side that we have this control over and like forcing a conflict, uh, I think is, I mean, maybe we'd win it, but what would it do to the world in the process? Like, cause I've uh, read that China kind of, it suits China not to have it. Cause it's like, oh, if everyone just works together one day, we'll take it, but it's sort of good never to actually take it. Cause then you always have this sort of potential to go for. Yeah, and that's exactly the potential benefit of competition with China. Uh, if the United States does not go to war with China over Taiwan in the next decade or so, then the rest of the century really does get to be competition. And it's what's great about China is it just doesn't seem to be as interested in fighting proxy wars as the Soviet Union was. I mean, Ukraine is a massive opportunity. If they wanted to do that, I mean, that could have been... Uh, that could have been a much more nightmarish uh, uh, conflict, but China hasn't come to the dance, you know? In any real tangible way. I've heard of some things getting over, but nothing major. And they're not getting like, you know, top weapons like HIMARS, for instance, or, or tanks. Or, well, they just, I, I, doesn't, isn't Russia running out of artillery rounds as well? Yeah, also running out of barrels. Like, um, it seems like it's they're you know in a war you're not as mechanically sympathetic to things, so they're really churning through the material. And China is a uh, uh, among many other things. It is first and foremost a uh, manufacturing titan. Oh yeah, it could just keep you supplied all day. Yeah. Um. So China. China doesn't seem to be interested in proxy wars. Oh, you know, companies are terrified of then getting hit with sanctions from America. So they're kind of just doing their best to leave it alone to some degree. And I think they're possibly happy to see their partner become significantly more junior. Whatever the reasons behind it, that's a good mm -hmm. result as far as I'm concerned. And if that holds in other aspects of the competition, what made the, the Cold War so ruinous for many parts of the world was the fact that the U.S. and the Soviets just loved to play their, you know, fun little uh, spy versus spy games that would, you know, kill millions of people. Because um, that was year that's year. the old sort of um, saying is it was a Cold War for America and the Soviet Union, but sadly for a lot of other countries, it wasn't. Exactly. Um, so especially if, if China continues to be reticent to jump in on proxy wars, then this competition... I mean, it's, you know, we've already seen like a higher level of competition for uh, Africa. Uh, so it means that the, the, the it's so overused. Uh, Larry Summers most recently, you know, it's when, when China, uh, when the UK comes to town, we get a lecture. When China comes to town, we get an airport, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, but it means that the United States has to step up its game. 
but also Britain and EU and all sorts, because, you know, a lot of what China is doing with this soft power is just what they have been doing for years, and they have been sort of reducing their influence in the world, so it kind of reminds them that they can't take it easy. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's I think that's good. I think it's if this competition doesn't end up being proxy wars, it means diplomatic competition. And we're seeing that specifically in the South Pacific right now, a whole range of sort of micro nations that uh, haven't all have a vote in the UN. I think so. Yeah. But they haven't been geopolitically important since World War Two. Specifically, I think a lot of the development happened when Japan and the United States were duking it out in the South Pacific. Uh, in at some point last year, China did a somewhat minor deal with the Solomon Islands, which was terrifying because the Solomon Islands uh, is a couple hundred thousand people on uh, a significant chunk of the globe that happens to be right off of Australia. Um, so since then, the United States has been uh, opening embassies, doing development deals, re-upping, um, what's the, the Commonwealth Agreement? There's some kind of association agreements with certain territories that used to be our territories, but are still our territories. Um, but um, uh, and it's been tremendously positive for those South Pacific Islanders, and like that's a great um, model of like what this competition could be. It's like China and the United States. How much can they spoil these other countries? It sounds good, you know. And and instead of doing what they did to Laos. Yes, well, that that that's not great. Um, and I think we'll leave it on that note. More okay. diplomacy and uh, economic development, as opposed to bombing a small nation. Wow, man! I usually I'm the one who makes it dark at the end, Rory. <laughs> that was a positive spin. Yeah, all right, all right. The More Freedom Foundation is also available on YouTube and TikTok. Rob's Twitter is RobOlaw. And he's also written a book called Avoiding the British Empire, What It Was and How the U.S. Can Do Better. And music provided by Kevin MacLeod.